So biblical hope is desire with expectancy. Now, I'll give you an essay quiz at the end of the sermon today and see if you can explain that to me. But truthfully, every person has that hope. Now, the struggle comes in life when you and I see and experience things that dash our desire or our expectancy. In other words, if you watch the evening news and you look at all the chaos going on in the world and all the craziness and all the evil, then what do we say to ourselves? We say, well, God, if you are good, and if you can, in fact, do something about this evil, why do you allow it to happen? Now, by the way, every person has asked that question, so don't say that you haven't. And if you've never asked it, then you've never had to face reality or think through issues. And if God could answer, and if he would answer us audibly, then I believe, this is my opinion, this, is, this would be his answer to us. Just wait. Just wait. I have an answer to all of your questions, but I'm not going to give you that answer right now. You're going to have to trust me and just wait. And in my time and in my way and in my working, I'm going to work everything out for my glory and ultimately for your good. But you're going to have to trust me. This is exactly what was taking place in Isaiah's day. You know, Isaiah is often called the gospel of the Old Testament because he references hope and glory so many times. He talks about Jesus. We're going to see that in just a moment. But this is God's answer to man's hopelessness. Now, the scripture says, the New Testament tells us to go back and read the Old Testament passages so that we as God's people can have hope. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. For whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we... God's people, Christians, we might have hope. We might have this desire with an expectancy and a knowledge that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. So, what was the situation here? Now, we could talk about America today, and there are parallels here. But in Judah's situation, and I'm going to show you a map here. Look how big Judah was. Judah was like a, a, a pinhead on a map dot. Two small tribes in the nation of Israel that God had promised he would bring the Messiah through the line of Judah. They were down in this very small part of Israel. Well, the the top ten tribes had turned against the bottom two because the nation had split. You know, the Republicans went one way, the Democrats went the other. I'm kind of being funny here. And they were all fighting in between. And the top ten tribes were getting ready to go down and kill and replace the southern king. So they had partnered with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, a nation to the north. So the top ten and Syria said, let's go down and whip up on Ahaz. We'll get rid of him, we'll put in another man, and we'll control the whole area. Well, Ahaz, as you know, he was biting his fingernails off, didn't have any faith in God. This is where Isaiah seven fourteen, the promise of uh, the virgin will conceive. Talking about Isaiah's wife in that passage. She will conceive and I'm going to give a sign. So Ahaz asked me for a sign. Ahaz says, no God, I'm not going to do that. 
And God says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to give you a sign. And so he gave him a sign. So Judah was in a mess. They didn't know what to do. And then God begins to give them the ultimate answer of what he was going to do. And here was God's answer for hopelessness. You know what it was? This is so God, isn't it? God is so unpredictable. Can you imagine this? My answer for your hopelessness is a child. A child. Now, can you imagine what the nation was thinking? A child? Are you serious? I mean, we need answers now. Now. You're telling us a child? And God says, yes, I'm going to give you a child. But not just any child. It's going to be a child who's also going to be a king, who's also going to be a ruler, who's also going to be a savior. But you're going to have to wait for him. Now listen to what Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 says. And I'm going to explain this as I go. So notice, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. Now, where were those two? Those two, na- those two places were where the Assyrians came in, captured, and also put their men in with the Jewish women, and this is where the Samaritans came from. And as a matter of fact, the Jews in the south so hated these two places that they renamed it Galilee of the Gentiles because they thought it was so impure that there would be a mixture of any type of race. And so God says that those two places that everybody calls cursed, one day there's going to be no more anguish upon them. Notice what he says, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, that is, the Galilee of the nations. Now, by the way, where was Jesus born? This is a quiz. He was born in? Go ahead, Bethlehem. But he was raised in where? Nazareth, which is where? In Galilee. So he allowed him to be raised in a country town. Now, aren't you glad that you're in Christiansburg? In a, in a country town. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now remember, he's predicting here. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. Now we are not an agrarian society here today, but we used to be. Go back to your grandparents And they can remember going out and planting corn and wheat and food that they had to eat. And what was harvest, by the way? When you went out and gathered harvest, it was two things. It was payday, first of all, for the whole year that you'd waited for. And second of all, it meant plenty. You had food for the year, so you had a payday and you had plenty. You ever seen people on payday? Usually they're so excited. After they get back from Walmart, you know, after you fight the crowd, people, they got all their food in their buggy. They're just so happy. So he says, this is what it's going to be like. People are going to be rejoicing as on a day of harvest. Or like when people go in and conquer in war 
and they divide the spoil. This would be like a Black Friday for us, about the only thing I can figure. You go in and there's five TVs and you wanted one of them and four people beat you, but you grabbed one and you're like, I got it. We're just so happy. We, we got the spoil. And this is what Jesus said, or God said it would be like when Christ came. Notice what he says, for the yoke of his burden. You all know what a yoke is, right? If you've ever been on a farm, an old mule or an ox or a cow, you take this big old heavy piece of wood and you put it right on top of his back. <clears throat> you know, strap it to him because he's got to pull all that stuff. He says the, the yoke of his burden, the, the pressing down, the weight upon him, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, you've taken that burden off, as in the day of Midian. Now, do you all know what the day of Midian was? Well, here's how you remember that. Gideon, Midian. Who, who was Gideon? Gideon was the man that was so scared of his own shadow that he, he couldn't walk around the door without turning the light on. If you don't believe me, you have to go read it. And so Gideon was always, he, was, he, he couldn't believe anything God told him. When God would tell him something, Gideon would say, well, Lord, I'm going to lay a fleece out. Make it wet if this is true. And then he would pull it back and say, well, Lord, I'm going to lay a fleece out, make everything else wet, but make it dry. And on and on. And he got to a great big army and was going to go defeat somebody. And God said, nope, I'm not going to let you take 32,000. You're only going to take about 300. And Gideon was like, oh, no. And what did God do on the day of Midian? God went down and fought for the nation of Israel. He defeated the whole army and didn't even need one person. And then Gideon realized the battle was truly the Lord's. So when the Messiah comes, it's going to be like the day of Midian, and he's going to defeat all the enemies. Now notice what happens. For every boot of the trampling warrior, like military armor here, this is what you need to think about. Every military armor in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, you have to go back and picture ancient warfare here. I mean, it wasn't pretty. But all of that, instead of being used to kill people, it'll be used to heat. Isn't that nice? There will be no war, folks. This is what he's saying. And how is this going to happen? Notice the text. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. So a child is going to be born, but a son... Now, son in the ancient Near East, in the concept of kingship, this meant a king. Think Psalm chapter 2. Today you have become my son. Today I have begotten you. Speak to the nations. Hold up your rod. You will dash them as a piece of pottery with a rod of iron. You'll shatter them in two. Unto us a child will be born. Unto us a king a divine king will be given. And notice the promise. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The nations of the world will be under his reign. He is the one who will be carrying the nations. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Now notice what the text goes on to say. Of the increase of his government, remember he's carrying the nation on his shoulders, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is what you call an eternal kingdom. You know, we we here believe that God is going to reign upon this earth for a true thousand years. But we don't think that's it. We believe that that's just the tailgate party. Because the kingdom, according to Daniel, is eternity. So the thousand years is just the kickoff. And then there will be a whole eternity of righteousness and peace and justice. I mean, folks, we don't understand what God has in store for us today. But this is what the Word of God says, that those who have placed their faith in Christ for eternal life have to look forward to. So this life is as bad as it can ever get for us. So whatever you're going through, I want you to know something. God wants you to have hope today in the person of Christ. Because whatever you're going through, this is as bad as it will ever get if you know Christ is your Savior. But the government will be upon his shoulder, and the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, I have to make a comment about the throne of David. Where is the throne of David? You need to know this. The throne of David in the Old Testament was always in the nation of Israel. And if you read the prophecies in the Scripture, Jesus, when he sets up his kingdom on the earth, he will do it right in the middle of Jerusalem. Now, some people think that God's finished with Jerusalem or Israel. He doesn't have a plan for them. You know, we, we have to smile. But you basically have to erase the whole Old Testament. And part of the new. Jesus himself said that he was going to reign one day upon his throne in Jerusalem. And it would be the center of the earth. And he would rule there. And so he will reign in Israel as the king. And all the governments of the nations of the world will come to him. And there he will establish his earthly kingdom for at least a thousand years. And then it will go into eternity. What a wonderful, wonderful promise that God has made. Now how do we know for sure that God's not going to change his mind? Or that nations aren't going to overpower God and overthrow his plan? Well, in order to know that, notice what Isaiah writes. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now let me translate that for you because you're looking at it in English. The emotional charge and ambition of God, that is, the warrior God, that word L-O-R-D when it's in caps is the word Y-H-W-H. It's the, it's the idea of God being a warrior. The one who always wins. So, the, the zeal, the fervor of the warrior God of hosts, that means of armies. The zeal and the passion of the warrior God of all the armies of heaven will do this. So in case you think he can't do it, he can and he will. Now, in light of all that theological truth, have I wore you all out? Some of you are going, oh my goodness. I, I want to share with you, this is a blessing, this is not my sermon, I'm going to fly through it. 22 mentions, 
mentions of Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah. I, just sit back, sit back. This is a good devotional study, by the way. I just wanted to share this with you. Listen to what Isaiah says about Jesus only in his book. He will be called before his birth to be God's servant. He will be born of a virgin. He will be a descendant of Jesse and thus in the Davidic line. He will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He will be gentle toward the weak. He will be obedient to the Lord on his mission. He will voluntarily submit to suffering. He will be rejected by the nation of Israel, his own people. He will take on himself the sins of the world. He will triumph over death. He will be exalted. He will come to comfort Israel and to bring vengeance on the wicked. He will make known God's glory. He will restore Israel spiritually to God and physically to the land. He will reign upon David's throne. He will bring joy to Israel. He will make a new covenant with Israel. He will be a light to the Gentiles. He will restore the nations. He will be worshipped by the Gentiles. He will govern the world. And he will judge in righteousness, justice, and faithfulness. Sounds like a good sermon series, doesn't it? All from the book of Isaiah. And I'm sure there's more. But these are truths about who Jesus is. Now, what does this mean to us? Well, what do we do with all this? Great information. Now, what do we do with it? I'm, I'm going to get there. Just be patient. How is God going to remove hopelessness? He'll do it through a child. Through a child promised, through a son given, and his name is Jesus. Now, notice what he says. In verse 2, he will bring light into darkness. Now, by the way, I could trace these themes throughout all of Scripture. But he will bring light to darkness. Notice verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In John chapter 8, what did Jesus say about himself? I am the light of the world. And anybody who comes after him will will walk in the light. But the problem is nobody wanted to come to him because why, John chapter 3, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. So Jesus is the light of the world. And when he comes into the world, guess what he would do? He would shine darkness. He would shine the light in the darkness. And by the way, did you know it only takes a little bit of light to dispel darkness? But do you realize darkness cannot overpower light? That's a, that's a fascinating scientific experiment. You should research that just a little. The power of light And God says that he is light. And so many Old Testament passages talk about God being the light. Jesus is the light. He also brings joy instead of sadness. In verse 3, here the promise is made that he will multiply the nation. He will increase its joy. You know, Paul talks about the joy of the Spirit in our life. Jesus being joy to us. And we understand this in our own life when he comes inside and when he lives in us, those of us who know him. We can look at life even though things may look bad. We understand it. God gives us a glimpse at things from his perspective. 
And we can have joy. And as one person said, joy is something that no one can ever take from you. Never. Your money can be taken. Your health can be taken. Your family can be taken. But your joy can never be taken. And neither can your eternal life. It just can't. Certain things God gives to us. Jesus will also lift the burden instead of adding oppression. Verse 4 says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, wow, God's going to break it. Now can you all imagine the yoke and the oppression? I came from the Middle East just a few weeks ago. And, and we don't understand really oppression here yet. Maybe we will. High gas prices are maybe an oppression to us. Uh, maybe when they pass some laws that say you can't do this or you can't do that, and you know we're stubborn and we say we're going to do it whether you like it or not. We're going to preach this whether you tell us we can't or can or can't. Doesn't matter to me. You're not God. He is. We're going to speak the truth. We're going to do it in love, but we're going to say what God says. But when you go to that part of the world, people are beaten. And their, their merchandise and their home and their family are persecuted because of the oppression that is placed upon them and the force by which they are made to do something. And in that day, God says, I'm going to lift that oppression. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take all that power. I'm going to break it because Jesus is going to be on the throne. Oh, it's going to be such a wonderful day. Wonderful day. You just look at the headlines in the news and all the oppression. Look at China. We have missionaries that cannot go back to China and probably, folks, never will. They have cut off Christian radio. They've tried to censor everything. North Korea is doing the same thing. Other places in the Middle East. There's so much oppression. But in the day when our Lord comes, He is going to break that oppression. There will be none of that. There will be no illegal censorship. And it's going to be wonderful. He'll lift the burden instead of adding oppression. And then he'll bring universal peace. I love that in verse 5. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tomorrow and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be no more war. Now won't that be wonderful? Now, you all are watch, you watch the news. We see what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. We see what's happening with China toward the United States and also toward Taiwan. You all understand what's happening. Iran toward the United States. North Korea toward the United States. I mean, it is an absolute mess. I mean, it's a mess. And we don't even know a portion of really what's going on. But in light of all this chaos... One day, you and I are going to live in a time of peace. Because Jesus is going to make sure that it's going to happen. And His zeal will make that possible. Now, He gives these four names. And by the way, this is interesting. I'll give you a little worthless information here. A lot of scholars that go back and dig into Isaiah say that all these titles were given to Jesus or whoever this figure was because they used to give titles to Egyptian kings. And I spent way too much time reading on this this week. But nevertheless, they went through all this big list of all these names they gave to these Egyptian kings. 
and they would give them five titles to try to make them into a deity. And one scholar who came back rebutting this, this is what he said. He says, you have a big problem because there's only four names here. So you've written all this mess about what you're saying is applying here and it doesn't make a hill of beans because there's only four. If you have a King James Version, it breaks this into wonderful and then it'll break it into counselor and then the other names, which will give you five. But in Hebrew, they are joined together. The wonderful counselor. Do you know what that means? And you hear this preached all the time and it does preach better when you say, you know, Jesus gives you counsel. He's like a therapist. And when you come to Jesus, he gives you good information. That'll preach. But that's not what Isaiah is saying. What Isaiah is saying here is he is a military strategist. If you think for one moment that the nations of this world think that they're going to defeat God, he's letting them know he has another plan in mind. And by the way, if you read the book of Revelation, you know, and we see Jesus coming back, what do the nations of the world do? Do they bow on their knees and say, oh God, you're bigger than we are? No, they try to fight him. And what does he do? We know the answer. He destroys them by speaking a word. He takes care of them. But the text here says that he is the extraordinary strategist. He is the wonderful strategist. He's the military conqueror. You know, I was reading this week, and Jim Edmondson back in the back can tell you more about this than I can, but the strategy of Winston Churchill. And by the way, I'm not comparing God to Winston Churchill in any way. But if you know anything about Winston Churchill, he would have this idea of how to strategize a, a military battle. And he may go into the room and everybody in there might be against Churchill and say, you are crazy, you have lost your mind. But somehow or another, Churchill was so smart and he was able to figure out military strategy in such an incredible way that his plan worked. But let me assure you that God will not have to have a cabinet meeting to decide what to do. You know why? Because he is the ultimate strategist. He is also called the mighty God, the El Gabor. Now this concept has the idea of the ultimate victor. I mean, this is like trying to fight somebody that there's absolutely no way that you can ever win. This is our God. Do you have this picture of Jesus? I mean, if you have the idea of him in a baby crib, you know, going around and you can make Jesus whatever you want him to be, get rid of that. That's not our God. He's the ultimate warrior. And he wins every battle he fights. And that includes your battles, by the way. You know, by the way, how does God want us to fight today? Paul tells us our battles are not with flesh and blood. You cannot beat someone or something physically and whip it. Our battles are spiritual. And the only way we win our battles is by His power and His strength. And most of it is accomplished on our knees, not with our fists. And if God's people remember that, it'll take us a long way. But one day, Jesus will conquer the battle with His fists and the word of His mouth. But not now. We have to have hope. 
desire with expectancy. The third truth is the everlasting Father. Jesus is the everlasting Father. Now, what does that mean? Some people would say that 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 is his role in the Trinity. Well, don't say that, because that's not good. He's not the Father. As a matter of fact, there's another verse in Isaiah that uses this phrase, and it has the idea of his relationship with his people. Now, are you listening? This is a blessing. He will never leave you. And this is what Isaiah is saying. He is the excellent strategist. He is the conquering God. And he is also the one who is so related to you, he'll never leave you. He is the everlasting relation keeper. Now some have had fathers that have walked out on them. Some have had bad experiences in your home. You know people in your life. The father has been not what he should have been. But I want you to know something. God is not that way. Jesus is not that way. He he is the shepherd, the great shepherd to his sheep. And Isaiah says that he is the everlasting relation keeper with his people. Isn't it amazing how many times in the New Testament that Jesus reminds his people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, people were fighting and arguing over money and fussing and carrying on, and the Apostle Paul came in and said, Stop that! Stop that! Quit worrying about that! The writer of the Hebrews told them, same context, people scrapping and worrying about life and living. He said, Stop! God has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Same concept here. He is the Father who will never back out on his relationship. And by the way, we need some of that, don't we? You know, one person said that a father in the home is so important because they are like a mirror to their children. Children look at their father, and then they look back upon their own life, and they see their value and their worth. This is why it's so important when you become a parent to be a good, godly parent. Because your children find their identity in you. And if you have daughters, this is extremely important. Because they look to their father, basically to the man that they're going to marry. That's scary, isn't it? Dads. But I'm saying all that for this reason. God's people need to learn to look at Jesus for our identity. Stop looking at your job. Stop looking at your career. Stop looking at your house. And for heaven's sake, stop looking at your children, mom and dad. Stop trying to find your identity in your children. Find your identity in Jesus. Because He will never leave us. He is the everlasting relation builder. And then... Oh, this is a good one. He is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. He's not just peace. You know, he is the prince of peace. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in the upper room right before he left? They were biting their fingernails. Where are you going? Where are you going? Can we go with you? And what did he say? Silence. And then he says, My peace I give to you, not 
like the world will give, but I give my peace unto you. Now, can you imagine anybody else ever saying that to you? Did you all take secular psychology like I did in college? Can you imagine Sigmund Freud? Have you all read Freud? Can you imagine Freud saying, My peace I give unto you. He had none. Can you imagine any of the philosophers? Can you imagine any of them saying, My peace I give. How about Buddha? Or Muhammad? Or Gandhi? Or any of these people? My peace I give unto you? Only God Himself could say something like that. My peace I give, not as the world gives. I give you my peace. And He will be the Prince of Peace. Not only inner peace, but He will be the one who brings external peace. And by the way, if you want to know who's going to be able to control Iran, Iraq, Russia, and all these different nations of the world... Can I answer God's question? Here it is. How is God going to do that? Jesus. You say, well, I don't know if I believe you. Well, just turn back in Isaiah chapter 2. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. Five of them. Actually, just hold your place there and I'll get to it in just a second. Because I've got to finish my message. Four reasons we have hope in Jesus. Do you know why we can have hope in Him? Because He is an extraordinary strategist. God knows what He's doing, and we should follow Him. A second reason is He is an all-powerful God. Every word He promises is going to come true. And we can trust Him. He is an everlasting Father. He will never abandon His people. And you know what we can do? We can rest in Him. And by the way, if your world's chaotic and crazy and life's going nuts right now, just hold on. Hold on, just rest. You say, well, I can't rest. Do it. Because you're worrying it and doing anything anyway. You're just causing more gray hair and high blood pressure. It's not going to do one thing. Rest in Him. He will never leave us or forsake us. Life may go crazy. We may die. We may lose it. Whatever. Whatever it is in this life, folks, for the believer, it's as bad as it can get. And then, fourthly, he is a, a, the Prince of Peace. We shall have an eternity filled with the absence of problems. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. You know, we come to church to worship. What that means is we, we basically take our eyes off of ourselves and we place them on the bigness, the goodness, and the greatness of God. I mean, if we come to church and all we see is ourself and five ways I can do this or I, 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 and we don't see God, we've missed the whole point of worship. Worship is not about you and me. It's about Him. So when we pause and we begin to contemplate the greatness of God and the promises of God and what God says He's going to do and we sit back and we just try to take in what God says, that is actually when our greatest blessing comes because it flows from Him. And God says that one day you and I are going to be in eternity with Him in a resurrected body. And guess what's going to happen? We are never going to face fear, doubt, stress, death, 
pressure, need anymore. And I could go on down the list till you got tired of them. But can you just stop for a moment and fathom that? I mean, there's, there's coming a time in the believer's life when this is going to be a reality. Now listen to what Isaiah wrote. I'm in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass, when? You all read that on the screen with me. Read it. In the... Okay. Whenever that phrase is used, it doesn't mean right now. It means that God has a plan in the future. And you know, God's not in a hurry, by the way. Jesus does not have to come back in my generation or my great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren's generation. So stop that. If He wants to wait 10,000 more years, He can do that. So He doesn't have to come in my generation to be faithful or yours. God has a time. We don't know when. He doesn't ask us to worry about when. He tells us to be faithful in our life all the way to death. And He'll take care of that. But in the latter days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. What does the rest of that say, folks? And all... Nations shall flow to it. Now notice the text here. This is not poetry. This is narrative. That doesn't mean that truth's not in poetry, but this is a narrative. All the nations shall flow to it. Now, just put that in context today. Can I put this in context? Imagine. If Jesus were in Jerusalem, the White House would have to go to Jerusalem. And they would have to give worship and homage to Jesus. And if they didn't, according to the Scriptures, what would happen? The heavens would become as iron. What does that mean? It wouldn't rain. There would be no food. And there would be great problems. Now this is what the Old Testament says. But these administrations are no problem. Russia would have to go. China would have to go. Kim Jong-un, whatever his name is, he would have to go. All of them would have to go and bow because all the nations will flow into it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. You know what a plowshare is? They shall beat their AR-15s into a hoe. And their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No need for the army, marines, air force, navy, Hezbollah. No need. There will be no military training, no defense budget. And now notice what he says. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come. Because this is what our future is. This morning we come and we celebrate the person of Jesus and I hope and pray that you know Him as your personal Savior. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, this is the grand opportunity for you to place your faith and your trust in Him. And this is basically how, what you do. You say, Dear Father, I know I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve your blessing or your grace, but I realize you gave Christ to die on my behalf. And I trust His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross as the payment for my sin. And if you're willing to do that and you place your faith in Christ for eternal life according to the Word of God, as many as believed Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. And if you have placed faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then what God's message to you today is, is stop being hopeless. Look at the hope God has laid out for His children in the pages of Scripture that were written hundreds of years ago, yes, but still await perfect fulfillment. And God will be true to His Word. And as His people, we place our hope and our desire with an expectancy that one day God's going to make this happen, and it's as certain as if it starts today. And in light of that hope, we live our life with joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and kindness and faith, because God is going to make it happen. And today we're going to celebrate Jesus who gave His life on our behalf as we partake of the Lord's Supper. So in just a moment, our, our men are going to come by. You have two cups. So when you reach and take the cup, the top has the juice. If you pu pull it apart, the bottom part has the wafer in it. So grab one if you're a believer this morning. You'd like to celebrate Christ's death and His resurrection with us. You may partake of that. Sharon's going to come and play a song. We're going to give you a chance to evaluate your life, your Christian life. Are you a, a believer walking in the light? Or are you managing the darkness? Are we loving Him and living for Him? Man, you can come on up and hand that out. Or are we hiding from Him?